From the campus of Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, this is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, bringing the activity and education of the college to listeners across the country. Here's your host, Scott Bertram. Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. On this episode, we'll talk with Michael Anton, lecturer in politics and research fellow at Hillsdale College, and also author of the new book, The Stakes, The 2020 Election and the Point of No Return. Ben Whalen from Hillsdale's English Department on The Sun Also Rises. And Hillsdale history professor Brad Berzer tells us about a side job as a member of a progressive rock band. We're joined now by Michael Anton. He's a lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, also a former national security official in the Trump administration, a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, and author of the brand new book, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is, of course, a book about 2020 and what's at stake in this election, but reading it, it is so much more than that. It, it is really an overview of where we are as a nation and why, not just why 2020 is important, Michael, but why 2024 and 28 and virtually every election, as you argue, is just as important in the future. Yes, I think that what the Democratic left wants is, obviously they want power, uh, and they, but they want power for very specific ends, which is to implement their entire agenda uh, without opposition and without having to make any kind of compromise. I mean, yeah, okay, they'll say, well, we want to take power through an election, and that's legitimate. Well, uh, how legitimate are elections when the Democratic strategy for the last 50 years has been to uh, demographic, import voters to demographically tip areas blue uh, permanently so that red votes simply don't matter anymore? They've been doing this for half a century. Joe Biden has promised to do it if he wins. He's going to amnesty every illegal immigrant in the country, he has mm-hmm. said. Uh, according to a Yale study from late 2018, that's 22 million people right there, and who will all then be eligible under chain migration to bring in relatives and so forth. So, you know, we've seen what happens when they get total dominance. The, we've seen it in California and New York and other places. Um, they enact their whole agenda. Uh, it's a pretty radical agenda. And if you are conservative or libertarian or middle of the road or religious or any of these other things, and you live, happen to live in one of those states, your vote doesn't count and your opinions don't matter. Um, life uh, policies, all kinds of things will simply be opposed op- on you, and your only alternative is to put up with it or leave. No, at least when it happens to states, there are other states to flee to. When mm-hmm. it happens nationally, where are Americans supposed to go? Uh, <laughs> I ask that question. Um, you know, this is our country, too, mm-hmm. and we should have a place in it, but I don't, I, you know, I don't think... The, uh, the Democrats and the left and the radical left and the Antifa left and the BLM left and all of these crazies who are, uh, who are running the party and the movement now um, think we deserve a, a place or a voice. Michael, you spend the first part of the book looking specifically at the state of California. What's the problem with California? Why should we see it as a possible future for the country? The problem is is that it, what once was a, really a paradise for the middle class has become a dystopia where you have to be extremely... It's still a physically beautiful state, but to enjoy California, one needs oceans of money. And the middle class is completely squeezed out. And then you have a large uh, lower class, which some of whom are productive and hardworking, 
for whom, you know, Victor Davis Hanson points this out, California works well if you're used to really, really terrible poverty in Central America hmm. or Southern Mexico, and you come to California and you, you know, you are living a, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a very crowded area in a kind of a bad neighborhood, what we would call a bad neighborhood, you know, what a middle-class American would call a bad neighborhood, making a low income, but life is so much better than it was in Guatemala or El Salvador or Oaxaca, Mexico or whatever, that California is working for you. But it doesn't work for anyone else. That's the problem with California. And it's so politically lopsided that no, uh, no opposition is heard or heeded. It's also been uh, crumbling. The infrastructure, which was a, a marvel for the world when mm-hmm. I was growing up there, is, is a disaster today. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, they, they raise taxes ever higher, and they can't seem to spend the money on anything worthwhile that makes anything better. Um, it's just, I, I, I could spend, as the chapter is pretty long, <laughs> I could spend this entire interview talking about the problems with California. But there are, there, there are numerous myriad, they're not getting any better. Michael Anton with us, the book, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Uh, as a phrase, I'm not sure many of our listeners might be familiar with. You do a good job of the book of describing uh, civic nationalism. You say civic nationalism was indispensable to the founding of our country. What is civic nationalism? Civic nationalism is a kind of nationalism that seeks to create what, let us call, an organic nation develops over centuries. So, you know, everybody knows without being able to define what makes a person French versus not French, right? And the French have been becoming the French since whenever that was, you know. I mean, in Roman times, they were the Gauls, and then they were the Franks. When did the French become the French? You can't pinpoint a date. You just know that it evolved over centuries, and and then they evolved together, and they have this French identity. Same with the English, right? In the Roman times, they were the Britons, um, then the Saxons, and what is, you know, we call, we think of Anglo-Saxon as a term for English. Well, Saxony is in Germany, so there's another migration of Germans that come to the British Isles. There's another migration of Normans who come from northern France in 1066. After that, there's really not any migration to the British Isles for about a thousand years. And the English people come together as a nation, as a people, but also distinct from the Scots and the Welsh and, other, and the Irish and other peoples that live in the British Isles. Well, in America, the American people became a people in a single day when they declared their independence from Britain and the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence and when they said, we are one people, we are separating ourselves from this other people, and we are taking up, uh, up the, uh, the, the rightful, the separate and equal station that the laws and nature and nature's God entitle us to have, right? So we became a people on that day, July 4th, 1776, and with that document, um, and that people was already um, multi-ethnic. It already had different religions, both different Protestant sects, but also Catholicism and Judaism. And so a way to bind them together as Americans had to be found. And it was essentially, you're part of the social compact. You pledge fealty to this country, to its other people and this government. And by the way, we're also going to welcome in over the years at, at our discretion immigrants if we want to and, and, and forbid or reduce immigration if we don't want to, but we can welcome new people into the social compact and then they become Americans and they, um, you know, civic nationalism is a way to uh, essentially assimilate those people and make them a part of our nation. Uh, now, you, you know, you can do this in other countries too. You can go and emigrate and some countries will accept you with citizenship, but mm-hmm. for instance, I could go to France, maybe potentially live there 
and try to naturalize as a French citizen, and on paper I would be a French citizen, but I wouldn't be French. Right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing that can make me French. American civic nationalism is a little bit different than that. It's not wholly dissimilar, but it has this element, and I think that element was indispensable to bringing the country together and making it a united whole at the time of the revolution and keeping it together throughout the 19th century and most of the 20th century until the, the radical left and identity politics deliberately was foisted upon the country as a strategy to shatter that unity and divide the country. Michael, you ask in The Stakes, what's closer to the government you'd like to see, the founders' vision of America or America 2020? What are the largest differences between those two entities that actually can be addressed or can be repaired based on perhaps how we decide in 2020 and in the future? Well, I specifically ask that question to what I call conservative critics of the founding who say, you know, you Hillsdale people who love the Constitution and the Declaration so much, they got us into this mess, right? Civic nationalism is inherently a failure. It doesn't work. And we have to go forward on a new basis, whether that's an ethnic basis or some other religious basis, you know, the integralists, the so-called who want to uh, govern uh, the country under Catholicism. I don't see how that's going to work. And I'm Catholic myself. I don't see how that's going to work, right? I'm saying to them that, you know, first of all, you're wrong as a fact. The founders' vision did not get us into this mess. Mm -hmm. But uh, second of all, the appeal back to it will help get us out of this mess. The founders are, are, we're not the problem to the opposite. They're the solution. So as to the differences between the way we're governed, it's hard to point to any. (laughs) I hate to say this. It's it's sad, but it's, it's hard to point to almost any feature of modern American governments, the way the regime operates, that, that operates according to the founder's vision or what I call the parchment. I mean, we deviate from it daily in almost every way, and getting that back is going to be very, very difficult. Um, and I think a generational project, if it is to happen at all. Michael Anton with us. The Stakes is the book, America at the Point of No Return, here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Uh, you speak of federalism in the book, uh, as perhaps it is in theory and in practice, Uh, these laboratories of democracy, as they're called. But you make the point that that state governments in this country are largely allowed only to be more progressive left than the federal government and uh, and uh, and what elite opinion might allow, but but nevertheless. And so it's only these laboratories in in one direction. Yeah, that's a problem. I have to be addressed. I'm a little bit more hopeful there because I think it's easy. It's uh, within the bounds of plausibility to conceive of serious resistance from states. If there's a blue takeover of the federal government and the feds start trying to come into states and saying, you must do X and Y and Z that really cut against the, uh, the way of life and religious principles of the populations there. And I can see governors starting to stand up to the federal government and saying, you know, no, you're not going to, you know, for instance, keep our churches closed forever. Um, in red states and things like that. So I'd like to see a, a much more assertive federalism uh, emerge in the in the 2020s, and I I think that can happen because I don't I don't get the sense that as again that that the left is going to say well we won and now it's time to become calm and, and start making compromises. I think they're going to try to press their advantage hard, and I think that they're going to get I think and well and, and hope that they're going to get some serious pushback. All right, hold on there. Michael Anton with us, the new book, The Stakes, The 2020 Election, and The Point of No Return. Back with more with Michael Anton in just a moment. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour.
The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E, hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram, talking with Michael Anton, lecturer in politics and research fellow at Hillsdale College and author of the new book, The States, the 2020 Election and the Point of No Return. I'm not sure when the final draft was due on the stakes, but certainly it was after some of these protests and riots and violence began. I started it, so I began writing the book in in literally in California, (laughs) the first chapter in December, right before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I was probably halfway done, maybe more than halfway done. No, I think I was more than halfway done when um, all the mayhem broke out uh, in late May. The, the woke riots, or the 1619 riots, as my professor Charles Kessler yes. famously called them in the New York Post, and um, Nicole Hannah Jones, I think is her name, the lady behind the 1619 project, tweeted her approval. She yes. said she was proud to have the riots named after her <laughs> 1619 project. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the nihilistic left today and, and, and our, our legacy lead institutions such as the New York Times, that they're proud to have essentially sponsored riots, I don't know what else there is. Anyway, so as these things unfolded and I had to go back and you know, edit all the chapters and reread the book from beginning to end to make sure that I liked where it was, I was able to um, thread in a, a material about the, the ongoing catastrophe that's unfolded the nation. Yeah, you write, you write America, or large parts of it, appear to have lost the will to enforce the law. That certainly has been clearer as these months progress since those riots and protests began. How does that change? I don't, I don't know how that changes. I think, though, certain things that are, are easy to predict. Um, these, these blue cities that have chosen to destroy themselves are going to depopulate. They won't fully depopulate. But anybody who just can't stand that kind of life um, and constant crime with mayors and governors excusing it, egging it on, refusing to let the police do anything, punishing the police when they enforce the law. Anybody who just doesn't want to live in a state of total barbarism is going to leave these places. So they will depopulate, they will shed businesses, their tax bases will collapse, and they will deteriorate into you know something like what Detroit looks like today. Um, which never, ever recovered from um, the 1960s riots. And we'll see if in a generation or two some of these cities come back to life. Uh, and then the question, I think, will come down again to federalism. So we'll see if, if, if you know, purple states that are on the, on the knife's edge between a Republican or a Democratic vote for president that have Democratic governors right now, such as Wisconsin and Minnesota, could very conceivably elect 
Republicans, if the, enough people in the rural counties and the suburban counties say, I don't want rule by woke mobs and riots every night that are encouraged by the political leadership. I think you'll certainly see red states say, we're going to enforce the law. I mean, you're seeing this now. I mean, Texas and Florida, from what I understand, have not had serious problems. And Indiana and, and some others have not had serious problems because their governors have said, I, I, and their mayors, I'm just, we're not going to put up with this. We mm-hmm. will enforce the law. We will stop rioting, and so on and so forth. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think I am not wrong, but the governor of Kentucky, for instance, which is a, a, a red state, which I absolutely expect to go for Trump in the fall, um, is a Democrat, and yes. he has let some very serious uh, lawlessness go on in Louisville for a long time. You know, I mean, to the point where people are making, ex- you know, groups are making extortion threats, and and uh, armed militias, left wing militias, are marching in the streets. And I can imagine that the people of Kentucky aren't going to be too thrilled by that. Or this guy may end up being a one term <laughs> governor. And I think in other red states, you're going to keep, you're going to see this uh, intensify, where one big difference between red America and blue America, unless blue America can decide it's you know, it's okay to enforce the law, is people are just going to be safer in red states. Now, I think uh, there's a calculation going on here. It's a miscalculation, in my judgment, but there's a calculation that um, some are saying, some of these blue governors and mayors are saying, it's good that this is going on, it unnerves everybody, and it unsettles the country, and we can pin it on Trump. To another extent, I also think they, in their bones, intuit or realize even if they tried to shut this down, they couldn't. Mm-hmm. They don't have the power anymore, and the popular reaction from woke mobs on the street would be too strong. So even if the vast majority of their state populations or city populations are with them and want to see order, these, these mayors and governors are just too weak to restore it, and they know it. And so rather than provoke a backlash, they just sit back and do, and do nothing. And the question is of how long that can last is you know, one that I can't answer. But the longer it lasts, the more I think you're going to see these places just depopulate. Michael Anton with us. The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return is the book. There's a wonderful subsection in the, the book, Michael, on uh, propaganda and censorship. They're controlling the message. You have these three terms. Maybe you can quickly describe them. Narrative, megaphone, yeah. and muzzle, which is your uh, contribution to those terms. What, what, what right. do you mean by that? The narrative is the meta story, the overarching story. And so right now, and for some time, the narrative has been that America is fundamentally racist. And to be just blunt, and I almost I hate to use such terms, but the left has racialized everything, that even to describe what they say, I have to use their language, but that whites are inherently evil and racist. You just, if you're white, you're born in, within your DNA, you're inherently evil and racist. That's the narrative. And they push it constantly. They push it uh, on a macro level by say, telling that story. And then by the stories they select to cover and amplify and by the stories they deny ever happen. So, you know, George Floyd, what is that? Well, it fits the narrative. A white cop uh, apparently killed a a black suspect. Now, I say apparently because this is going to be investigated, and there's already indications that George Floyd did not die from the actions of the police officer. He died from a a very large um, opioid overdose, right? But that fits the narrative. So what is the megaphone? The megaphone is their collection of means to push out the narrative, to blast it at full volume. Mm -hmm. That means the entire media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, all the um, TV channels, except Fox News, all the social media channels, all the universities which help indoctrinate, the schools, the megaphone is, you know, you really only get one side of any story in America today. Uh, And then the muzzle is the way they censor. So social media is supposed to be open to all, 
But if you um, depart from the narrative in any way, your, your posts will get taken down and you will be banned. Hmm. So here's, I mean, there's thousands of, probably millions of examples of this every day, but here's just one that I found today. So the latest, uh, the, the destruction of Kenosha, Wisconsin, was prompted by the shooting of a man resi- resist- wanted for an open warrant, uh, resisting arrest, um, possessing a knife, and, and, and re- reaching into his car, presumably for the knife. Okay. Uh, a lady who is a victim uh, of, of this man's uh, crime in the past, a woman who had been raped by him, allegedly, and he was convicted of, of the crime, I, I gather, she posted something on Twitter or, uh, today saying, uh, you know, this sickens me to see a person who did this to me lauded as a hero. He's not a hero. Taken down immediately, and she's banned, Right. Because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't fit the narrative. So we use the muzzle. We use our complete control over information flows to n- not let you hear inconvenient facts. Michael, there are sections near the end. If present trends continue, and uh, this certainly uh, concerns the 2020 election, but if present trends continue, say, goodbye Constitution, uh, neither its letter nor its spirit will be honored. If present trends continue, if that happens, then what, in essence at least, will replace it? Um, nothing will replace it formally. They will keep the... Con- I mean, if, if there is state coast-to-coast, a permanent blue government, they will keep the... I, I predict they will keep the Constitution formally the same way that uh, Augustus Caesar mm-hmm. formally kept the, the unwritten Roman Constitution and pretended to be just a senator like everybody else. But in fact, they will observe none of its um, guarantees except the uh, limit term limitations. I think they'll do that because that's the one thing that would be too obvious for Americans to ignore. They need to uh, change out the president every eight years. But the real election, if that were to come to pass, would just be We'd be either the Democratic primaries and or a kind of uh, smoke-filled room, <laughs> as I say in the book. You know, it wouldn't be tobacco smoke. They're against that, but maybe pot. They're certainly for marijuana. <laughs> uh, smoke-filled rooms would get together and decide, okay, it's your turn to sit in the big chair for eight years. But the real people who run everything uh, are the bureaucrats and the uh, tech guys and the finance oligarchs. So it would be kind of, an, I call it an elective monarchy. Uh, I use the term from uh, that Machiavelli uses from uh, uh, Prince Chapter 19. Mm. Be sort of like that, and then that's it. They would, the elected monarch would swap out every eight years in accordance with constitutional presidential terms. But other than that, I don't think any of the provisions of the Constitution will be observed. Michael, toward the very end of the book, there's kind of a what now chapter, I'm paraphrasing, but you essentially say, you know, you're not necessarily a policy wonk. You don't have these prescriptions, perhaps, but there are a few. There are a few inside the stakes. Uh, One is the argument you make that the the current present-day Republican Party needs to become a little more like the old, not the current, the old Democratic Party. What do you mean by that? I mean, it needs to be much more openly in favor of furthering the interests of the middle class and the working class and the economic interest and much less dogmatically free market and and free trade and more willing to use state power to thumb the scale in the interests of, of American workers, American industries, and American communities. And the Republican Party, as it's constituted today, is completely allergic to that idea. It just can't. It, it's, it's worse than allergic. It, it rejects it with abhorrence because it's it's uh, completely in the grip of a kind of free market dogmatism. That, by the way, Alexander Hamilton and Abraham Lincoln and lots of other 
great American and some Republican luminaries did not share. So I think if we can get back to that, uh, you know, we have a shot at building a, the kind of economic unity that we need to create a, a greater level of unity in the country that we obviously don't have right now. I think one of the reasons why the country is in such a crisis is that uh, the people who really run America for the last 30 years, maybe 40 years, maybe 50 years, have been very busy remaking the country as a kind of winner-take-all oligarchy mm-hmm. and strip-mining uh, wealth, and, you know, not great wealth. I mean, the American middle class in the heartland, these were never extri- super-rich people. They were by world historical standards, but, you know, not by the standards of what we have now. And we've just seen this sort of the certain industries and people and regions kind of vacuum cleaning um, uh, wealth and wealth production completely out of the middle, taking it away. And people are, uh, are, are sick of that. And that's one of the reasons we got Trump in 2016, and I think it's one of the reasons why the country is so divided right now. And we need to redress that. And the Republican Party, the Democratic Party is absolutely 100% now the party of the oligarchs. It will not. Um, it has no interest whatsoever in returning to its former status as the party of the working man and woman, mm-hmm. the Republican Party has to do that if it can find the will. Michael Anton, lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, former national security official in the Trump administration, and the new book available now, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thank you. Up next, from Hillsdale's English department, Ben Whalen takes us through The Sun Also Rises. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. We say hello to all our listeners in Redding, California, listening on KCNR 96.5 FM and 1460 AM, Thank you for listening to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. We're joined by Dr. Ben Whalen, Assistant Professor of English at Hillsdale College. Dr. Whalen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. We uh, speak today about Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises. Uh, for those who have not read the book, if you could summarize the main characters, the basic plots of The Sun Also Rises. Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. This is a this is a short novel Hemingway wrote in the 20s, and uh uh, at the time, Hemingway was living in Paris, and the novel is set in Paris. Uh, but the narrator of the novel uh, is a—he's uh, an American in Paris also. Uh, and the novel, uh, his name is uh, uh, Jake Barnes, uh, and he's a veteran from World War One, and he suffered an injury from World War One, um, which is never quite specified for us. But uh, but we we understand that it has inhibited him from any sort of physical intimacy. Uh, and that that ends up being a theme throughout the novel because he loves this woman, uh, Lady Brett Ashley. She's a she's an English aristocrat, uh, but divorced from her husband, and uh, she loves Jake also. But the his injury uh, stands as a sort of a problem for them. Um, those are underlying themes. the The action of the novel is that uh, 
uh, Jake uh, in his community with friends in Paris. We, we get a good view of the 1920s jazz age in Paris. Uh, there's, there's this, um, our, uh, we, we learn about his friends and his community uh, in Paris, and then they decide to go to Pamplona in Spain uh, to watch the running of the bulls and the, the great uh, bullfights there. Uh, and so uh, Jake and his friends, uh, Lady Brett included, and this other man who is, uh, becomes a lover of, of Lady Brett, uh, Robert Cohn. They travel to Pamplona and, and watch the running of the bulls. And, and there's a sort of powerful description of the bullfights as well as of these characters and their lives as they hit crises uh, at, uh, during this uh, fiesta. Would we consider this novel uh, an example, perhaps an early example of modernist literature? And, and what do we mean by that by that term? Yes, I, I, I definitely think it is. It's one of the important uh, early works of modernism. Um, uh, if I was to, uh, if we were to think of modernism, we, we might think of a couple of different points in terms of style. Uh, it's usually experimental, and we certainly see that in Hemingway's *The Sun Also Rises*. It's got this uh, unforgettable, uh, short, direct language, uh, and then sometimes also stream of consciousness uh, uh, enters Hemingway's works and, and *The Sun Also Rises*. And um, so we'll see that. Uh, that's another aspect of modernism uh, is experimental uh, perspective and the stream of consciousness and shifting between these perspectives. And we see that in this novel. But there's also a, a sort of a philosophical component to uh, literary modernism. And that, that has to do with a number of things, uh, a number of them brought on by um, uh, World War One, mm -hmm. uh, which Hemingway uh, was was part of and is writing about a bunch of veterans and people who were uh, uh, affected by World War One, and um, and one one of the one of the things that the generation after uh, World War One encountered and felt was a real disillusionment, uh, a sense of dislocation and loss or confusion, and uh, and that's that's very typical, I think, of literary modernism. Is that there's while it's experimental in style and perspective, we also see. Uh, philosophical and spiritual crises, uh, and uh, and a search for meaning or a search for an explanation for suffering, mm -hmm. uh, and that's certainly uh, true in this novel as well. Do we get that the phrase "the lost generation" from 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 the sun also also rises? Yes, that's that's right. Um, the the phrase was actually. Uh, uh, it was a. It was spoken to Hemingway by his friend, a fellow writer and art collector, Gertrude Stein, uh, who he knew in Paris in the twenties. She she was of an older generation, and she called Hemingway, "Oh, you are all a lost generation." Um, and actually, if you read *A Movable Feast*, this is a late memoir Hem Hemingway wrote that's really wonderful about the the time in Paris in the twenties. Hemingway, when he heard the phrase a lost generation, he resented it. Hmm. Uh, and he went home thinking every generation is a lost generation in, in some way or another. Um, and so he resented it there, but then he included it as an epigraph. It's one of the two epigraphs uh, for The Sun Also Rises. Um, and, and it plays a prominent role because th there is then this question for this very confused and suffering uh, group of, of people uh, as to how lost they are and how they might get found. <laughs> ben Whelan with us, assistant professor of English at Hillsdale College, talking about The Sun Also Rises from Ernest Hemingway. Uh, what, what, what kind of symbols, themes does Hemingway develop during the course of this book? Um, so uh, I, I mentioned that they go to uh, uh, Pamplona to see mm -hmm. the running of the bulls and the bullfighting. And it, it turns out that uh, there's a subtle interplay uh, where we see how these bulls behave in this violent way. Uh, and then actually these fights that break out among these men. And so there's this scrutiny of human nature uh, and in comparison with intention with these bulls and the bull fighting. 
Um, another another really prominent thing you might watch for if you're reading the novel, it's subtle, but uh, a lot of things in Hemingway are. Sure. Uh, the churches and religious imagery, there's this delicate uh, undercurrent of uh, churches that they see and visit and talk about or lean against. And that, that that's a prominent aspect of this sort of spiritual crisis that's occurring in the novel. Um, uh, I have a friend here. I recommended the novel to him and he read it and he said uh, that novel has more alcohol than any book <laughs> I've ever read. And it's true. The characters are in this um, not always drunken, but alcohol uh, stupor for much of the novel. And that's another prominent um, point. It's, it's in fact a theme in a way it is, uh, uh, say, uh, taking good things, uh, but then to an extent that mm. they are, are quite destructive and bad and and make you unhappy. And so the, in the search for happiness, abusing goods and, and further falling into unhappiness. So you see that in different things with fiesta and carnival and alcohol. What what's the meaning of the title? The said also said that's yeah. a, it's a biblical reference. Yeah, right? it is. That's right. It's uh, it's from the uh, it's from a passage uh, in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and actually that that passage is the other epigraph for the novel. So along with the lost generation, uh, we get this passage, and, and Hemingway includes. Um, I think maybe seven verses from Ecclesiastes there. Uh, and the, the context there is um, that the sun rises and the sun sets. One generation passeth away and another generation generation riseth. Uh, and it goes on. But um, that passage would seem to suggest or, or emphasize cyclicality uh, mm-hmm. in human experience in life. And um, I think that's an, that's an interesting point. And it's it's sort of a counterpoint or it's in some sort of tension with the idea of a lost generation, because instead of singling out one generation, it uh, points to one passes and another comes. And uh, so I think there, there are ways in which uh, Hemingway uh, is suggesting, it, he, he's certainly in dialogue with uh, the Bible anyway throughout the novel, uh, but he's also, I think, uh, investigating the ways in which um, perhaps all generations uh, 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 have their crises and their, their points of suffering. How was this novel received at the time of its release, and why is it endured? Yeah, uh, it was. Uh, it, it was. This was. This is actually. Uh, I should have said this. This is Hemingway's first novel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was writing a lot of short stories before this, and even wrote a book of uh, poems uh, earlier on that did not take off. So Hemingway was a uh, quite poor. Uh, writer in Paris when he when he wrote this and uh, he was working his his main point of income was as a, a journalist um, but uh, this novel was his breakthrough uh, so th- it was uh, uh, wildly popular went through many many editions in his lifetime uh, and uh, and has endured I think um, I think it I think there are a number of interesting reasons why it's endured I, I think just as a story it's uh, it's very well told it's very gripping very powerful. Um, I also think it it touches certain points of interest. So people interested in the jazz age, the first half of the novel taking place in the Parisian jazz age, you have this this sense of what what the, a real uh, vivid sense of mm-hmm. what what that life was like. Uh, and then also, I mean, I, I think when when you read the novel, the running of the bulls and the bullfights and the language that Hemingway uses to describe the art of the matador uh, is very beautiful, very powerful, and it's and it's not um, it doesn't avoid the brutality and the horror uh, of the death in the bullfights, uh, but it also admires the, the the artfulness of the fighters and their their skill and and also the danger they face. Uh, so it's a it's a it, it's got much to please many audiences uh, in it. Um, yeah. 
Dr. Ben Whalen, Assistant Professor of English at Hillsdale College, talking Ernest Hemingway and The Sun Also Rises. Dr. Whalen, thanks for joining us on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thanks for having me, Scott. Up next, Hillsdale history professor Brad Berzer tells us about his work outside of the school as a member of the band The Bardic Depths. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Great books, great people, and great ideas. Knowledge of these things is critical to becoming a well-educated human being. That's why I'd like to tell you about an easy and enjoyable way for you to listen and learn whenever and wherever you want. And that's through the Hillsdale Dialogues. If you haven't heard about the Dialogues, once a week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins radio veteran Hugh Hewitt to discuss topics of enduring relevance. From time to time, they also talk about current events, but always with an eye toward more fundamental truths. And they want you to listen in, to join a conversation like no other. The Hillsdale Dialogues are posted every Friday on podcast.hillsdale.edu. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. Find us on Twitter at Hillsdale Radio. We're joined by Dr. Brad Berzer, Professor of History and Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College. Dr. Berzer, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. Dr. Berzer is also part of a band called the Bardic Depths, and we'll talk a little more detail about what that is and the music that they've made, but Tell people, what, what's the Bardic Depths? Oh, thanks, Scott. Yeah, this is a, a side project for me. So in addition to being a professor, yes, I do have this progressive <laughs> rock band that I'm a part of. And I, I'm not a part of the music, really. I, I've done all the lyrics. So we actually, um, we published, or we came out, we released one CD in March this year under the name The Bardic Depths. And uh, we're going to have a second one coming out next year from the same company. And that, that's been great. In fact, our, our producer, Robin Armstrong, has just been a fantastic guy to work with. He's very entrepreneurial, but is really an auto audiophile, and I think has an excellent ear for things. He runs. He actually is uh, the main figure in a band called Cosmograph, which has done very well in England. Not so big as here in America uh, as they are in England, but mm-hmm. yeah, they've done well. And a lot of this it comes out of the rock tradition, but it's the progressive rock tradition, and so a lot of you know, weird fantasy lyrics. Yeah. I mean, and- so we should we should clarify here. Just very briefly, progressive rock does not mean you're writing lyrics about you know Medicare for all. <laughs> you're not writing you know these these wonderful things about Woodrow Wilson. This is this is not at all what that is. Thank you for clarifying yeah. that, Scott. That is absolutely though. You know, it's funny having gotten to know uh, uh, British progressive rock fans uh, <laughs> over the last ten years on social networking. Uh, they they are truly progressive politically too. Unlike Americans, I think we've been too deeply influenced by Rush yeah. and others that we don't we don't have that left wing strain, but they do. But progressive <laughs> rock, I mean, it's like multi part suites. Yes. Progressive very... in the same way as progressive jazz, right? Yes. Lots of weird time signatures and odd instrumentation, uh, and and throwing in a tonality, but always bringing it to some kind of a conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. So you can have everything from the dissonance of King crimson Mm -hmm. to the harmonies of yes right all of that kind of fits in so yes genesis jethro toll those are the great classic progressive rock bands rush yep definitely so i I know you i know you've been a long time progressive rock fan and now you're actually involved in the process of 
of making music. Your, yes. your partner here in the Bardic Depths is someone you've worked with previously before right. this band came together. How did the two of you, uh, I was going to say meet, but I know that hasn't yeah. happened in person. Uh, how did the two yeah. of you get together and how did this partnership develop? So there's a, his name is Dave Bandana. That's his stage name. And that's pretty much what he goes by legally these days too. He He's actually a, a retired salesman and he ended up retiring to the Azores and uh, he's been there now for a while. And he had a band called Salander, which is named after one of the great uh, mystery writers uh, of Scandinavia. And I, he sent me a copy of his band's stuff. It was pretty raw, but he sent it to me a couple of CDs that they did about 10 years ago. And I, I was pretty taken with them. And I especially loved what Dave does song to song. It's all it's progressive overall, mm -hmm. but he has no problem throwing in a disco bit here or throwing in hard rock here or whatever it may be. And he loves he loves playing around with sound. So can we sound like 1973 Genesis, but make it for 2020? Yeah. That's one of Dave's great gifts. Uh, not it, it's imitation, but also innovation in a way. Um, he's not just imitating. It's not a it's not just a cover band. Right? He's playing with these things. And so he and I met on a forum through a guy named Greg Spotton, who was the head of a band, uh, now has gotten pretty big, actually. They weren't 10, 15 years ago. A band called Big Big Train. And that forum is the most active Facebook forum for progressive rock of any progressive rock site I know. And people come together. There have been other bands that have formed out of this. There have been friendships that have mm -hmm. formed out of this. Uh, Greg has led historical tours. Greg Spotton of Big Big Train, he's led historical tours of Britain through this. I mean, it's amazing what kind of communities form. And yeah. I actually think that's one of the great strengths of, of rock yep. um, and of modern music, forming these communities. And Greg is obviously especially good at this, uh, as forming communities. Partly, I mean, he's just so real and sincere. But so Dave Bandana and I met through this, uh, me reviewing his CDs, really loving them, and then com completely a shock to me. Uh, after he and his friend had kind of broken up Salander, he wrote me and he said, Brad, I really like your words. Would you mind writing the lyrics for an album? <laughs> it's a little, you know, a little uh, seriously, you know, I, but I did. And we did two albums like that. We called them Burzer Bandana, mm -hmm. kind of for fun more than anything else. But then our third one, I don't know why, it just clicked. And we said, uh, you know, we like this. We want to invite a bunch of people to join us, mostly from the Big Big Train Forum. And uh, we think that this is worthy of doing something more than, than Bruiser Bandana. And the album's title had been called The Bardic Depths. And Dave said, let's just call that the band. Yeah. And all right, that's kind of cool. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I'm still kind of scratching myself, punching myself. I mean, I'm still amazed that it happened. But it's gotten good. Re In fact, we didn't get a bad review. We got all good reviews. Um, and we got reviewed i mean actually reviewed in a lot of different places in mainstream rock magazines in kind of uh, just niche rock magazines mm -hmm. we got interviewed a couple of people have asked if we tour that's not gonna happen um <laughs> I mean, and i wouldn't even know what i would do would i sit in the back and read lyrics i don't know um uh, but yeah, it, it's been great. And we've brought together, I think, our own community of really good people, really interesting people. And you've done this without actually ever meeting in person. Is that right? We have now, we've Skyped have, okay. with each other, but we've not physically, not like you and I are sitting here right now. Dave and I have never been yeah. in the same room together. No, we've only, um, we, and we're good friends. We email all the time. And But yes, we have done some Skype and yeah. But I mean, yeah. that's the amazing 
yeah, technology. You you, yeah. you can do that. That's right. And people can play an instrument in their own home and record it to a level where it works on a professional recording. And especially when you clean it up on professional, you know, Pro Tools or whatever yep. it may. I mean, it, it is amazing how good it can sound. So yeah. you uh, talking with Dr. Brad Berzer about the Bardic Depths, his band. Um, you wrote the lyrics for this Bardic Depths right. album. And again, with progressive rock, we generally have these narratives, these stories sure. that are told. So what was your idea for sort of the narrative of the album and how it unfolds through the songs? So one of the, the great, and I'm, I'm laughing here. You, I know your audience can't see me, but I'm smiling <laughs> pretty big about this. One of the, the greatest jokes about progressive rock is that it's always about elves and hobbits. Yes. And people dismiss it for that. It's like, oh, this crazy stuff. And you, know, you go back and you listen to Rivendell by, by Rush. Well, I mean, and, or, or watch This is Spinal Tap. This is Spinal idea, Tap, right. right. I mean, they're clearly mocking progressive yeah. rock. And so I thought, well, let's actually write an album about elves and hobbits, and let's make it serious. But how would we do that? Well, I'm going to tell the story about the two men who give us elves and hobbits. I'm going to write about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. So, you know, I'm, I've done academic work on that. I've taught classes on it and I thought let's let's do an album about it but we'll make it about the tragedy of World War One, and then these guys coming through that and being able to kind of deal with the trauma of World War One by writing these stories. So I tried to keep it as historically accurate as possible but it is the story about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien's friendship. Their experiences in World War One. we even start off with a battlefield. Uh, their experiences in World War One, the friendship that they develop, the kinds of ideas that they come up with and I, I deal with their friendship breaking up around 1949 and the the second to last song is called the end and partly that's an homage to the doors of course i love the doors <laughs> and uh, i love that song the end even though it's a brutal 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 violent song i love that song um and i, I wanted to do that but i didn't want to end it there so our final song is called legacies mm -hmm. and it's basically no matter what the frailties of hu the human condition and how best friends can fall apart we still, no matter what, we make our mark. And so that that's really what the album is about. And I, I try to keep to a very coherent story for all seven songs. And I, I think it worked. Um, I, th I mean, I I don't know if I could duplicate You're it. happy with it. I'm very happy that's, with it. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 nobody's complained about the lyrics. Um, so nobody's complained about any of it, really. I mean, we really have just gotten good reviews. And a, a French magazine, I don't know how big it is in France, but you know, we did a full interview with them, and they were very open. They, they, they said to me in the interview, you know, it sounds like maybe you're Catholic. Do you want to talk about that? I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk about that. Um, you know, I mean, it wasn't meant to be blunt or blatant right. but you know how do you write about lewis and not talk about his christianity or or tolkien and not write about his catholicism um it's there so you know it was i i have some lyrics about seeing through a glass darkly i mean you know if if you don't know paul you don't know that that's necessarily scriptural but mm -hmm. i was able to to get i won't say sneak it because it's right there yeah but yeah it was kind of fun to get some of my own and dave i don't know if dave uh, my partner in all of this. I don't know if he's religious or not. He was raised evangelical. Uh, I think he's pretty skeptical now. But he, gosh, Scott, I mean, I, I couldn't ask for a better guy who's totally open to me saying whatever I want to say, whatever my politics are, my religion, my views. He's cool with it. I mean, and I think he's kind of an old, old hippie. And sure. I think that's, that's all good. <laughs> We've got to play uh, something so people know what the band sounds like. What's your favorite track? What should we share with the audience? Oh, my favorite track is definitely 
track number seven, Legacies. Um, I mean, I like the whole album, but I think it really pulls together the kind of community that we were able to form around the Big Big Train community. So in terms of musicians, in terms of, uh, there are two great guitar solos in it, but we've got the musicians. I think the lyrics come together. And one of uh, one of my favorite musicians came in and helped us out on that last one. So not only Robin Armstrong of Cosmograph, but we also have uh, Peter of Tiger Moth Tales, and they're, they're a big band in England. They're not big here, but they're a big band in England. And uh, man, he, I mean, they do some great stuff on that and really do make that song just extraordinary. for Dr. Brad Berzer about the Bardic Depths. You're an academic. You've published as well. There are a number of books. And now you've written in this band. How would you compare the experience of in the publishing world sure. with the experience in the music world? Yeah, I've got a pretty... My imagination is, is definitely imagistic. I mean, I, I love scenes. I've always been there. But it's... Been ra- I was raised on progressive rock. I listened mm-hmm. to my first progressive rock album probably in 1972 or 73 because I had older brothers, and mm-hmm. that's what they were into, and so that's what I was into, and music was always in our house. My mom was great about that. Jazz, classical, uh, plays, you know, whatever it may be, musicals, whatever it may be. So I think that, I mean, I, if anyone ever asked me, now I'm not saying I live up to it by any means, but if anyone ever said, Brad, where's your imagination come from? probably comes from Genesis and yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think imagistically and I do, when I write my books, I have the same thing. Here's a person, here's a story, here's an image, here's a scene. That's how I write it. I mean, for me, that's why I do biography because yeah. it allows me to tell a story. Uh, and I hope I'm never dry. I don't want to be dry, but I think if anything, I go too far the other way with my kind of images and enthusiasm. And so writing progressive rock lyrics it's shorter than writing a book, sure. uh, but you have to be really, really concise. And an image has to represent a chapter, you know. And and so in that sense, it's kind of just a, 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 a condensation, a condensing of the story. Dr. Brad Burser, professor of history and Russell Amos Kirk, chair in American studies here at Hillsdale College. And also a member of The Bardic Depths. You can find their album where fine albums are sold. <laughs> Anywhere. <laughs> Dr. Burser, thanks for joining us here thanks, on the Scott. Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. That will wrap up this edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Our thanks to Michael Anton, lecturer in politics and research fellow at Hillsdale in D.C. His new book, The Stakes, the 2020 Election and the Point of No Return. Ben Whalen from Hillsdale's English Department took us through The Sun Also Rises. And Brad Berzer, professor of history at Hillsdale College, told us about his side job as a member of the band, The Bardic Depths. The radio-free Hillsdale Hour is recorded at the studios of WRFH, the student-run radio station at Hillsdale College. Remember, you can hear new episodes every week on this station. You also can find extended versions of some of our interviews or listen anytime to the radio-free Hillsdale Hour podcast. Find it at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify. Just search for the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. You can follow the show on Twitter at Hillsdale Radio or on Facebook at the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Email us at radiohour at hillsdale.edu. 
And to find out more about Hillsdale College, go to hillsdale.edu. Until next week, I'm Scott Bertram, and this has been the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour.